I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm joined by Claire Bucknell, a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, and the author of The Treasuries, a social history of poetry anthologies. With Colin Burroughs, she's presenting a series of close readings podcasts for the LRB on satire from Erasmus to Muriel Spark. One of their episodes will be on Byron's Don Juan, but today we'll be talking about Byron's other earlier work. Claire wrote about Byron in a recent issue of the LRB. The piece was a review of three books, Byron and the Poetics of Adversity by Jerome McGann, Reading Byron by Bernard Beattie, and Byron's Don Juan, The Liberal Epic of the 19th Century by Richard Cronin. Hello, Claire, and thank you very much for talking to me today. Hi, Tom. Thanks very much for having me. So you write in your piece that Having said we're not going to talk about Don Juan, I'm going to mention it straight away. <laughs> you write in your piece that, that Don Juan is a difficult poem to see past. Um, so that is what we'll be trying to do today. And that wasn't how Byron's contemporaries, including his publisher, saw his work at all, was it? Yeah, that's right. So the point of two of the books that I was reviewing, so the, the Beatty book and the McGann book, was to turn our attention or try to away from Don Juan, because Don Juan has taken up so much of the airtime on Byron, both in his own day, once it started being published, and also um, in the heyday of Byron criticism, so since the 1960s. And in so doing, it has obscured the earlier, so Byron's earlier works, so the sort of um, so-called dark poems, dark verse tales, which Byron's contemporary readers found difficult and challenging and interesting. But for various reasons, um, later critics have tended to brush off as sort of slapdash, you know, un- uncommitted, revealing an uninteresting mind, T.S. Eliot's words. And in, in various ways, you know, just Byron preparing the ground for what he was always really going to write, which, which is Don Juan. Yeah, but and he, I mean, that quote from Eliot, Bertrand Russell was went even further in saying that to most of us, Byron's verse seems often poor and his sentiment often tawdry. I mean, that's the same sort of time, I guess, as, as Eliot was dismissing him. But he, I mean, he famously said, I woke one morning and found myself famous of the, of the publication of the first two cantos of Child Harold's pilgrimage in March 1812. So that wasn't, people didn't find that difficult, did they? I mean, that hadn't sort of instant appeal or, or no that's right that that had an instant appeal but it speaks to what's interesting about byron's career if we can call it that is that it is deeply fortuitous you know he publishes this juvenile volume of poems hours of idleness when he's 19 it goes quite well he thinks 
oh, hey, maybe I'm kind of good at this. Maybe I can be a poet. And then he gets struck down by this absolutely lacerating review from, he thinks, Francis Jeffrey, who's at the Edinburgh Review, the biggest paper of the day. And it turns him to satire. How can I get back at these evil reviewers? Well, I'll become, I'll, I'll become a satirist. And so he writes English bards and, and Scotch reviewers about the state of the contemporary literary scene, uh, poetry and reviewing. And he goes off on this train of satire for a bit and, and that's working for him. But then again, circumstances intervene and the poem that he's writing alongside, which is this travel log of his travels in Spain and Greece and Albania, um, uh, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, that is the poem that then gets published that the publishers really want and that then makes him dramatically famous overnight and the readers seize on and are fascinated by because they see Byron in it. And so this becomes the source of his fame from the very beginning. It's how can we read this person who was rapidly becoming famous as a man, as someone in Whig society, into the characters of, of these tales. But it has... Um, but everything he does is radically occasional. He does it because something happens to him and he changes tack. And that's how Child Harold comes to be and comes to define early Byron. I mean, one of the things which is really, well, there are lots of great things about your piece, but the way you manage to mostly avoid biography is really impressive, I think, partly because it's so hard with Byron to avoid that. And, and his early readers and fans found that as well, didn't they? But there is a, there's a sort of teasing. I mean, that Child Harold... You could Lord Byron, Child Harold. You could they scan the same, so you could switch them out. And he is sort of playing these games with how much is him, how much is the character, how much is the, the so this confusion or tension between the poet and the hero was there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, when I was conceiving the piece, I was absolutely determined that it would have almost no biography in it to the extent that I was offered another book to incorporate within the review books but it was a biography and I thought no way we're not doing this you know this has been done to death and to an extent Byron courted it but also he didn't and he was much more invested in the writing of his poems than he's been given credit for. So I wanted the piece to be about that, to be about the processes of writing and the process of thinking within the poems. And obviously thinking brings out the character of a poet's mind and therefore their character, but it's the way that happens in poetry that was interesting to me and that I wanted to look at in the piece. So I made a real conscious decision to avoid biography where I could. And one of the things that you said, that question of thinking and thoughtfulness the Bi byronic hero is many things but one of the qualities he always possesses is thoughtfulness which i mean once you say it and once you you know you go into the poems and you pull out all these all this evidence of it it seems of course that's true but it's a slightly it's a slightly surprising statement from some points of view as well that in some ways you don't think of the byronic hero as being an especially thoughtful sort of rushing in and you know fighting or sleeping with the first person he encounters yeah that's exactly right and and I I sort of say the tales are so swashbuckling that you absolutely don't expect it they these in some ways obscure their own thoughtfulness because they appear to be so much about action but the ways in which action happens is often mental it's often in the mind it's about qualities of uh, reflection or memory or judgment sort of m mental happenings and what makes the Byronic hero distinctive and what Byron, how Byron distinguishes him from the villains, which are these sort of kind of dodgily characterized, sinister Turkish potentates, is that they are not thoughtful. 
They are, they want action. They want things done now. They don't want mystery. They don't want ambiguity. You know, they want the Byronic hero killed or tortured or whatever. That's it. Whereas the Byronic hero is contemplative. He's meditative. He is self-judging, self-lacerating. You know, these are the things that Byron thinks are interesting about his heroes. And there's also ways in which they often seem surprisingly passive. I mean, it's mm. not only thoughtful, but also, I mean, you talk about, um, when Manfred's standing on the mountaintop and possibly thinking about throwing himself into the abyss, but he's sort of paralyzed there and he can't move. And then the Shamwa hunter comes and takes him by the hand and leads him down to his chalet. And and I wonder how that ties into what you said earlier about his sort of reacting to circumstance that he's that his career, which in a sense we look at it now and it appears almost teleological, culminating in Donjon. But actually it was a sort of series of accidents. And if that there's a kind of passivity in in that that there also is in his characters and his heroes. I think that's a really nice way of looking at it, the way that that obedience to circumstance almost is dramatised in the tales. So what another example would be um, Conrad in the Corsair, who has to be saved by Gulner, who's the sort of beautiful queen of the harem that he initially drags out of a burning tower, but it's she later who breaks him out of prison, and she does so by committing the ultimate action, which is killing um, the Turkish ruler. So she is the one who sort of spills blood in the tales. She is the one who gets him out of his chamber. She frees him. She's the actor. He is the acted upon. Um, and it's an interesting dynamic because so much of what happens in those early tales has to do with will and the power of will and willfulness. And the, and the heroes are always thought of as extremely will, willful people. And there's an interesting interaction between how will, how the will is different to the thought, how you can think something, but how you can will it. But actually, as you say, circumstance is really, really important. And that then becomes a thread that runs through Byron's career. So, um, a feature of his later dramas is that there's a real choicelessness to them. And so often they are um, they staged in single places. They obey the unities of time and place. So you're stuck in a palace, you're stuck in a prison. And there are only certain things that can happen in those environments so that the path of the dramas is kind of laid out. There's almost no suspense. The thing that must happen goes on to happen. So I think you're absolutely right. You can see those foundations being laid in, in a kind of choicelessness of the, uh, of the verse tells too. And so where does the drama come from if in these situations where you have this sort of is incredibly limited and circumscribed but they still manage to be dramatic? Well, that, that, that was debated, <laughs> how, how dramatic the dramas really were. And Byron made a point of saying that they were closet dramas. So they weren't meant to be acted on the stage. You know, at most, they were meant to be read aloud by a group of people um, in a private room, a private closet. Um, and he said that in many ways, he was responding to the fashion of ranting, raging and ranting on the stage, and that these would be dramas in which no one would rant. They would be quiet and they would submit to their fate and they would be noble and, and do the right thing. So there was a question mark over how much drama you can really get out of situations like that. But I suppose where the drama happens is in the mind. So the way that minds can change, even if circumstances around them stay the same, or circumstances seem fixed, or fates seem inevitable, minds can change within that. So you can come to a resolution with yourself, and that becomes a kind of drama. But as you say in, in the piece, it's also that personal drama is connected to what's happening 
out in the world that they you so interweave the story of Europe with the story of self and and is that a sort of a self-aggrandizing movement in the poems or is it more of that being sort of having to acknowledge however much you these heroes try to be in their minds or think they're in their minds they are actually involved in the world more than perhaps they want to be yeah that's a good point so this is something byron does preeminently in his longer narratives so child harold in particular is is um he sees in the world outside him in history in europe um allegories and patterns that relate to his own personal history and you can see that one of two ways you can see it as um a sort of humbling move you know actually the things that i feel are so small and if you look outside me they're they're going on in much bigger ways in europe and i am just a tiny speck in the universe or you can look at it as extremely self-aggrandizing these big things out there are as nothing compared to with the compared to the drama in my breast and i am the one that matters and you know they are the mirror reflecting me and often it is that latter self-aggrandizing move that byron plays out but he's interested in um building poems a bit like palimpsests so you layer up the personal history along with um, a history of place a history of europe um, and you make all those different levels speak to one another as if they were equal so a bad marriage takes on the qualities of a battlefield a battlefield takes on the qualities of a bad marriage and neither is more or less dramatic more or less tragic than the other an elegy for self can be an elegy for a nation so all these things are interleaved like, like, like a palimpsest and do they also interrupt each other that you write about the question of interruptions and, and i mean there's a question you ask which i'm sort of going to ask back to you really but what does it say about what does it say about byron that his most characteristic move is to interrupt himself I'm really regretting asking that question now. Um, it was rhetorical, Tom. Um, well, if I can briefly speak about Don Juan in a non-satire way, so I promise we won't speak about it for long. Um, one of the, Byron gives multiple answers in Don Juan as to why he constantly interrupts himself, and one of them he gives is that life's boring. And we need to keep interrupting ourselves. We, you know, interruption is a spice of life. We need variety. Um, another is that interesting minds are mobile minds. They are minds that don't stay in place for very, very long. His characters whom he most favours are mobile characters who shift and change, again, according to circumstance, who let circumstance kind of colour them in this chameleon-like way and jump from subject to subject. He's not, he doesn't really like people who are rigid. He doesn't understand them. He can't work his way inside them. And then another answer he gives is that maybe it's hypocritical. Maybe it means if you cannot stand in one place for long, that you do not believe anything. And so what happens then? And he is, he hates people who are hypocrites on the face of it, like his great literary enemy, Robert Southey, um, former Jacobin turned Tory poet laureate. But he also sees aspects of his own mobility and quicksilver mercurial nature in that hypocrisy so you can he honestly reads it both ways he's very honest about how it can be seen as positively mobile and also negatively hypocritical and of course denying that you're ever hypocritical is necessarily i mean everyone's hypocritical sometimes so if you don't acknowledge your hypocrisy that's the most sort of hypocritical way you can be it's kind of perhaps not to acknowledge True. that i don't know the um but the interrupting again it's there in the earlier thing poems as well isn't it mm -hmm. that they, these bits it sort of happens a couple of times maybe more than that in child harold's pilgrimage that sort of in the second canto he says but where is he the pilgrim of my song 
he kind of he sort of forgets to have the hero in there he's busy describing whatever he's he's describing about his own travels around europe which are meant to be the travels of this character and in the in, in the last canto which was written a few years later right child harold the character the hero of the poem doesn't come into it until about 150 stanzas stanzas three yeah um and again methinks he cometh late and tarries long and that he is no more and he kind of brings him in just to make him disappear and says well he never really existed anyway and is that that sort of farewell to the hero who people imagined i don't know is there something about some commentary on the the byronic hero and what people thought of him and they thought they were getting from the poems and he's saying none of this was real yeah and you i think you can see versions of farewell to the byronic hero and lots of what byron does at this kind of midpoint in his career let's say sort of 18 teens 1816 and that sort of convenient forgetting that child harold exists and oh shit i need to bring him in because that is the title of the poem um is sort of typical and you can see it playing out in other poems of the period so the the prisoner of chillen for instance or chinon which he writes we you know when he's in switzerland and looking out at the lake and imagining what it was like for this prisoner to be stuck in this castle and the prisoner is like a Byronic hero projected into the future when all a hero's options have been taken away from him. He says um, all around him is vacancy, absorbing space and fixedness without a place. There were no stars, no earth, no time, no check, no change, no good, no crime, but silence. And in that list is many of the ingredients that make up the Byronic hero's tale. Time, change, good, crime, uh, stars, place. Um, and so these are all things that are now missing in the fixedness, in the eternity, in the choicelessness of just being in a dungeon. There is no there is no Byronic hero tale without a crime to set it, set it off. There's always a crime lurking in the background of these stories. And if there is no crime and if there is no change, how can you have a Byronic hero? He feeds on those things. So that's another version of kind of farewell to the Byronic hero. Manfred would be another one who is desperate for something to happen to him or be able to do something, but he is completely unable to do so because he is stuck in this um, this thought, this guilt that surrounds him and which he cannot break out of. And again, a crime lays somewhere in the back of that, but it is such that action is impossible um, compared to the heroic tale where there is the crime, but we can react to it. We can, we can force change. We can make things happen. And is there a sense that he's this sort of getting rid of the, so these, these trapped heroes? And there's a sense of which, maybe this is getting too biographical, but maybe we can... So only within the poems, not in his life, but there's a sense which Byron's poetry is trapped in these forms that he has to. So he tells one of these tales about Conrad or whoever else, or Lara or the Jawa, and they're kind of the same character over and over and again. I mean, they're slightly different settings, but they're recognizably the, the same kind of hero. And it comes to the end, and you think maybe he's going to do something different, but then he writes another one of these and somehow the, the the poetry is is stuck in this these forms which he kind of found a way out of with the discovery if that's not too strong a word of Ottava Rima and he suddenly found this new form that he could somehow w wasn't then stuck in these 
repeating the same story over and over again. And so when Manfred's kind of saying, why can't I just die? Kind of Because he knows when I do, I'll just come back in another poem with a different name. But Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he's sort of found a way out by through this this Italian verse form. Or is that too... It's a bit teleological, Tom, which, you know, there were warnings about that up front. <laughs> um, um, but but, I, but I, I think it's... I think you can argue for or against. Um, for would be that certainly something about the Italian language, the Italian form, Italian culture, the Ottava Rima, gives him a way of thinking and a way of writing that um, is more aligned with the kind of um, written self that we get in his letters. And so it allows him to ex- um, to run with a kind of expression that previously he's not been able to in poetry. And that is clearly extremely liberating but if you think about um the hero of don juan he is you know another recapitulation of our old byronic hero um with the difference that he's an extreme version of that choiceless hero of the verse drama in that truly he cannot choose anything that happens to him so women seduce him wars happen to him he's made a slave he's taken to the harem he's going to end up if byron wrote the whole poem on the guillotine so everything that everything happens to him he's completely choiceless so he's like kind of the extreme point of where byron's been working up to with, with these heroes so it is another kind of recapitulation i think yeah well that's very persuasive and that question of him yeah that recapitulation and falling back into it and in a sense that happens to don juan as well because i mean it's unfinishedness i mean i know again mm. this is a quite a modern way of looking at it and feeling it you know finding it appealing but this idea you know he all these jokes throughout is, is he going to get married or is he going to die and what's the difference they're all different kinds of hell but actually the, the hell that he does end up with because the poem stops you know not far into canto 17 because byron died is that you think he's he thinks he's fallen in love he thinks he's broken this cycle of seduction and violence and then he ends up in bed with someone else with you know the duchess Fitzfalk or whatever her name is and so he's and so the repetition that he's sort of con- being condemned to repeat himself is the hell that he's ended up in in a way worse than the guillotine for from a you know yeah certain point I of view. think that's exactly right and maybe there's maybe there's a reason apart from death that Byron wouldn't have managed to finish that poem because the guillotine would have been super final um <laughs> but yeah the Fitzfog thing is very interesting because she the sort of plot element there is that um, a spirit is appearing to him and there's this kind of gothic horror background which of course recapitulates the spirits that appear to Manfred so what we have is, is, is a parody of a plot point that Byron has earlier taken in a serious direction, you know, what starts as tragedy ends as farce um, but it is this sort of endless recapitulation endless recurrence variations on a theme and it is as, 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 you, as you touched on what makes Don Juan appealing to the modern mind is that it seems somehow proto-modernist because it refuses to end. Um, it's self-consciously fascinated with its own recurrence. It has that sort of hyper-modernist um, refusal of teleology. And in that sense, it's open to endless interpretation because it itself has no idea where it's going or what it's doing. So, yeah. <laughs> you talked about crimes earlier and the necessary of, of the crime to set a drama in motion and isn't there a bit of Manfred at one point says must crimes be punished but by other crimes and greater criminals I mean it sort of brings us back to this idea of judgment that you're talking about earlier that actually maybe withholding judgment or escaping judgment is more important because actually 
passing judgment definitively somehow just repeats the error that you're passing judgment on. Exactly right. And I, and I talk in the piece about how this refusal of judgment runs right through Byron's career. And it's if it's something that he's learnt from the way that English bards has been treated. And what's interesting about that is um, at the beginning of Hours of Idleness, this first collection that gets savaged by the reviewers, he writes this statement saying, please don't judge me too harshly. I'm only a minor. I'm only a young lord, I'm not even 21, you know, but he frames it as if it were a court of law. So he's pleading his minority. So in a way, he sets up this unfortunate critique, which then gets launched back on him. And the, the terms of the Edinburgh Review, they run with Byron's metaphor. Well, you know, we don't care that you're a minor because you can't put a work out there and then subsequently plead your own minority. This would only apply if you had not chosen to write this thing. And so in my mind, this becomes then the dominant metaphor that Byron is um, fascinated with that, that, that judgment, you're absolutely right, judgment merely returns further errors. And often the people doing the judging are just the kinds of people who we really don't want in charge because they've chosen to be judges and, and there's nothing worse. Um, so the kind of apotheosis of this is the vision, vision of judgment, which Byron writes as a kind of parody of Southey's vision of judgment, which is this orthodox celebration of George III's um, rising to heaven. And in Byron's version, of course, George gets to the pearly gates and it's really like not clear which way he should go. Um, but in that poem, Byron is very clear about refusing judgment. Or if he does judge, it's all about judging self and judging religious institutions and saying, who am I? How am I qualified to judge, given that I am probably damned like a lot of other people and there is nothing special about me and I speak internally? I'm clear about the inner standing point. And this is the phrase that... Um, McGann applies to Byron's poetry and he gets it from Rossetti. Rossetti about this the kind of inner standing point of not taking the moral high ground that, say, a poet like Pope does. You know, you don't have confidence in yourself to stand on a hill above everyone else and look down because you're in the, you're in the thick of it. You have no larger perspective. At the end of the vision of judgment... <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, that <laughs> the, is this bit that Saudis sort of come and pleaded his case, and then St. Peter thinks the poem's so bad he hits him with his keys and knocks him down, and he thinks he's going to sink, but then he bobs up like a cork, and what then? And it all sort of collapses. I don't know. It sort of reminds me slightly of an episode of Sesame Street somehow. We have all this this chaos and confusion, and while all that's going on, George the Third sort of <laughs> slips it slips into heaven while no one's looking. He sort of he manages to escape judgment. Did he have to do that? I mean, would there if, if he had actually written something in which the the dead king went to hell? I mean, was that would that have been treasonous? Would there have been genuine legal problems with that? Or is that there's a kind of well, generosity? There were yeah. Genuine legal. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There's a kind of generosity. There, there's a circumstantial element to it. It's like a Hogarth picture and what's really important is sort of sneakily happening in the background and things are allowed to just slide past. But but there were legal consequences. You know, his publisher, John Hunt, um, went, I believe, went to prison for it briefly. Um, so even in that form, even in the idea of we're not really sure whether George III should go to heaven or not, even in that form, that is enough to compass serious problems. Yeah. So I think the hell thing probably would have been not beyond Byron, but beyond his sense of what was safe. Yeah. Yeah. 
But it's interesting that it's almost as if, I don't know. I mean, the publisher could say, but look, at the end, he goes to heaven. So what's your problem? I mean, I wonder how it was as if they didn't, you know, they didn't. I mean, it's so surreptitious, his slipping into heaven, that the the authorities didn't notice it. So send him to prison anyway. Yeah, but but it's also, so this question of withholding of judgment and sort of the importance of doubt as well. I mean, I suppose that's maybe just another way of phrasing the same thing. But how how important was is doubt to Byron's poems? It sort of was hyper important. Um he so I mean on on the on the question of hell throughout his life, he doubts about the existence of the afterlife and he doubts whether heaven and hell can be real things. And he's completely fascinated by theology, but not as it were something that's gonna happen to him, but as a sort of body of fascinating knowledge that you can learn about. So he is someone who wants facts and wants interesting material and doesn't really care if it doesn't add up to anything. It's as if facts allow him to doubt better. So throughout his life, he's just compiling, he's adding these little facts and often they're obstinate and they don't add up to anything. And you see them in the early works as well as in the later, but in the early works, they're often in his notes. So he does these lengthy prose notes to the poems, which really serve to throw doubt on the text of the poems, because what they're saying is, well, this happens in one culture, but in another culture, they do this. Um, And then in Don Juan, that gets um, more reconciled into the text of the poem, because it is a poem that is much more hospitable to all kinds of doubts. So you can put the notes, as it were, inside the body of the text. But it's exactly the same processes. He writes one thing and then he thinks, well, I'd better qualify that. And either that goes in the paratext or it goes in the text. He's sort of incapable of thinking about things just one way. And that is another reason why it was more obvious in the 60s and 70s that Don Juan was a great poem than it was obvious that the verse tales were great poems. Because if you didn't really read the notes, then all you saw was a kind of certainty. But looking at the whole thing, there's a real radical uncertainty and a desire to bring in, um, I think I say like the unassimilable, unassimilable things of the world into play. And how much of that does actually have to do with the verse form? Child Harold was written in Spenserian stanzas and then Beppo and Vision of Judgment and, and Don Juan written in Ottava Rima. And how much was was he enough of a virtuoso poet that actually he could have, as it were, written those later poems in the Spenserian stanza, which he could have opened up and played the same games with rhymes and openness? I mean, is there, you know, you quote Auden saying something about him sort of being trapped by the earlier forms by the Spenserian stanza. Yeah, Auden thought it a disastrous choice, yeah. But it has a lot to do with form, but I think you're right. I think he was enough of a virtuoso that if he had thought to apply the Spenserian stanza in a different way, it could have gone in a different direction. For instance, that long ninth line that has the extra extra feet at the end is so open to comedy, really, if you think about it, because it can be used to undo something as well as to do something. And you can use it with a kind of ringing confidence that then undermines itself, which is what Byron does so well with, with the last couplet in Atava Rima. I can absolutely imagine a version of the Spenserian stanza doing that. I think it's trickier with couplet verse, which is what he chiefly writes his, his verse tales in, um, because the couplet is always pushing towards a resolution, constantly, constantly, res- resolution, resolution, resolution. And so what you don't have is that ability to build up across eight or nine lines and then undercut yourself, which is what you can do in these longer stanzaic forms. So yeah, I think I think form has a lot to do with it. And, then, and also the, 
the Ottava Rima that you then have that rhyming couplet at the end of each stanza, which is where you know his all of his his famous rhymes come in, and you know, lords of ladies, intellectual, tell us truly how they not hempectual, and all the you know, and <laughs> there's another one which you was it Euxin, Puxin, is that, and those, and I guess which you don't have. So having that rhyming couplet as a punchline at the end of every stanza, although it could yeah, that's you know, right, and yeah. There's a nice phrase from a famous piece of Paul West from the 1960s in which he describes Byron's spoiler's art and that art of spoilation, of sort of making something quite intricate and beautiful and then just purposefully like throwing paint over it and spoiling it. And that is what you can do with that couplet, Pukesin, Yuxin, which he uses more than once because it's so good. Maybe we could talk a bit about uh, Beppo, which is was mm. that his first Otava Rima poem it's shorter than Don Juan it's a bit shorter than Vision of Judgment and it's a different sort of story so how and it seems to be this this sort of this pleasure in sort of discovering a, a new way of writing about a different sort of subject yeah that's right and it's a lot of fun because it's about this triangular romantic relationship and that is something Byron knew personally a lot about and drew on a particular triangular relationship in his own life in in Italy and Beppo is set in Venice in Lent. So it has this carnivalesque thing built into it. You know, before carnival-esque, it is just carnival. Um, and so things are topsy-turvy. Husband and wife are not together, but wife and Cavalier Cervante are. And all sorts of comical accidents happen. And then the husband arrives back at the end of the story dressed as a Turk and we discover that he's the husband after all. Um, but it's all very merry and it doesn't really matter. So none of what happens actually has any sort of narrative bearing because at the end things are fine and they just become friends again. Um, so that it's entirely inconsequential. Um, there's a, a, a critic that I can't remember talks about Beppo's sort of radiant sadness, it's radiant inconsequentiality. And that's one of the most beautiful things about it, that truly nothing matters. And so what you start to see about the poem is that everything matters as much as everything else, which is nothing, so that the smallest things start to take on a huge importance. Um, so details really matter. And clearly Byron is discovering in this form that it's a form that allows him to accommodate all sorts of small inconsequential things in, for whatever reason he isn't able to do before. And it's something he loves to do in his letters. So he discovers that he can now do it in narrative poetry and fashion a story that whose plot architectonics don't matter, but his details sort of do and is there a sense of which he's sort of mocking his own earlier work I mean the husband comes back dressed as one of the villains from one of his eastern tales and then they all just sit down and have a cup of coffee because it's it's sort of it's the pantomime version of of those things yeah absolutely right exactly right yes I mean he's dressed as any number of the sort of nasty Turkish evil rulers from the early tales he might as well be dressing up in costume as one of those yeah and there are versions of that in Don Juan so there's, there's, there's pirates in Don Juan that recapitulate the pirate in, in the Corsair so he's sort of constantly hamming up something that was already hammy but pointing to its hamminess whereas before he kind of inhabits it or pretends to yeah so we've talked a little bit about Don Juan you'll talk about it much more with Colin in that episode of your satire series so where will it where will it sit as it were who does who does Byron come between in your series sort of between Pope and 
Jane Austen, I don't know. No, I think he comes just after Stern's Tristram Shandy, which will work very nicely. Um, and possibly, he might actually, I can't remember if it's Byron or Austen first. So we're doing Austen's Emma. So those three are kind of close together. So I think Byron might be in between those. Um, so there'll be a nice move in between social satire with the Byron and the Austen. And then we'll have the sort of encyclopedic randomness that you get with Stern, which will also feed very much into Don Juan. So it should be a nice little trio that I think. Yeah. And I suppose that also gets to something quite novelistic about Don Juan and about Byron. That the, that, I mean, there's a sense that he, I mean, Walter Scott was a bit before, but the way that the kind of there was, as Byron was writing, right, there was a shift from people reading narrative poetry to reading narrative prose. I mean, I suppose, that, I mean, obviously there were novels already, but the kind of, there seems to be, is it, well, maybe I'm being out of sync here, but I mean, it does seem to be that there's a kind no, of, there's, no, no. there's an inflection point in the early 19th century between reading, sort of popular reading of narrative verse and shifting to, to novels yeah i think that's exactly right and and you can see it hinging in the career of walter scott and in a sense byron sort of pips him because scott is writing narrative poems and they're selling incredibly well and then along comes byron and seems to be even better at this exotic narrative poem format and so one of the reasons that scott switches to prose is because of Byron. So there is this sort of hinge here. But I think that's exactly right. And so there are a clutch of really long, romantic, effectively novels in verse that get produced in the 18-teens and 1820s. Um, sort of Lee Hunt, for instance, lots of Byron's contemporaries are doing this kind of thing. And then what you get in the sort of 1830s, 1840s, and Richard Cronin talks about this in his book, or his very good book on Don Juan, um, is that the sort of silver fork novels of the period are recapitulating aspects of, in particular, Don Juan, but also other verse tales, because they were the long narrative forms of the time. They are what you draw on if you are moving to, to write, a, a, especially a social commentary novel. These are the kinds of things and heroes and tropes that you draw on. Yeah, so, so it is a real inflection point. And also, in Austen's novels, a lot of those of the, the heroes, I mean, the, the Byronic hero is uh, in the background of Austen's novels, that, that Willoughby and Darcy and Wickham and all these these brooding men, some villains, some not, some who appear villainous and aren't and vice versa, that are Byronic heroes, right? And don't, I mean, don't they read, Austen's characters read Byron or read, read Scott? Yeah, they, they certainly read Scott. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, um, but they are hitched to money in Austin in a way that they're not in Byron. So, you know, it matters that Willoughby has money and has got a certain amount of money and that's what puts him in this eligible position to begin with. And it's kind of, you know, for all Marianne's sensibility, he wouldn't be as attractive if he hadn't also got all this cash. So there's a kind of cash nexus in Austin that, that you don't get in Byron because the heroes are so dramatically removed from all ordinary commercial considerations by being put in exotic places and implicitly in exotic times. They are really removed. And I think part of what makes Don Juan interesting is that the money comes back. So commercial considerations are very much to the fore and not just in the English cantos, which are set more or less in the present day, slightly earlier. They are also present in the earlier cantos. So cash really rules all. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, is it possible that one of the things that Austin was doing is kind of what happens if you take one of these sort of men from fantasy and stuck them in a 
in, in, in England, in an English town now? And what, what would they actually be like and how would they actually get on? And, and I mean, I was sort of in Northanger Abbey where she, you know, what would happen if the Gothic mm. novel were actually, <laughs> let, let's take, let's take this fantastical stuff and, and try and make it realistic and see what happens. And what happens if you take a Byronic hero and stick him in Hertford? Yeah. And domesticate him yeah. and give him, give him 40,000 pounds a year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I look forward to, I look forward to listening. <laughs> to that and all the all your other episodes with uh yeah you'll have to get through rochester first so yeah uh, yeah i've yeah i've heard that i've heard we might need to put some sort of warning on rochester about the the levels of of bad language it's the price you pay if you want to listen to donjo and you've got to get through rochester claire bucknell thank you very much thank you you can read Claire's piece on Byron in the 30th of November issue of the LRB. Uh, for details of how to subscribe to her Close Readings podcast series with Colin Burrow on Satire, click on the link in this podcast description. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs>